We're uh, continuing our series in the book of Acts. We've been in Acts since last spring. We've been trying to see, we called this behind the scenes, so that we can look and see what the first church did and how that impacts us. And uh, just doing things a little differently today, if you have a blue Bible in front of you, I want you to turn to page 784. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16. And do me a favor, if you don't feel like opening up actual pages or there's not a Bible, put it, pull it up on your phone. Um, Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in uh, verse 11, and I asked Kelly to come up, so what I'm going to ask you to do is the tradition in sometimes more traditional churches, but uh, we're going to try to participate. I'm going to ask everybody to stand as we read the Word of God, and that's why I want you to be able to have the Bible in front of you, is Kelly's going to come up and read the text for us. So we're looking through from uh, Acts 16, verses 11. Did I tell you where it stops? It's on my notes. On to 24. Yes, again, page 784 in your blue Bible. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went to, on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city in that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once there, we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as your church, and we open up your word, and we listen to what is said. And now we are going to wrestle with what your word says to us. And we do this, Father, in a posture of humility. Because we understand, Father, that your word is massive and brilliant and challenging and mysterious. And sometimes this process of us just wrestling with what you have to say to us is difficult. So I ask your spirit the hero of the book of Acts, the hero of our lives, to come into this place, to fill our hearts and minds, that you may guide us as we examine your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, 
Amen. Will you have a seat? We've been looking in the book of Acts to try to determine what the church was and what it is today and how we should react. And today I get to deal with the topic of women in church leadership. And I've been looking forward for the opportunity to mansplain this topic for weeks now. And I hope that you will appreciate it. But the reason that we talk about this is because it is actually in the scriptures. And maybe for some of you, if you're new to the church, if you're new to the Word of God, that's a little surprising. You're wondering why we even take time to discuss this. And maybe, perhaps, you're from a long-standing church tradition, and you know the idea that the way that Echo has women in high leadership roles has been something that you have actually grappled or wrestled with. And what we want to do today is be able to open and examine the Word of God and to try to come to some sort of realization of what we see God doing and moving in the church specifically as leadership. What I wanted to start off with, though, is to deal with the obvious, because why avoid <laughs> what we are talking about? I think we need to meet it head on, because as much as we'll get back to Acts chapter 16, I want to show you what the Scripture says, the Word of God says, in vignettes about the leadership and the involvement of women in the church. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul writes, The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, we read that women should remain silent in the churches. Paul writes that they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And then later, Paul's letter to his disciple Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be kept quiet. What's very interesting is that the inspiration for much of who we are as God's people comes from the Apostle Paul and how God used him and worked through the Spirit to, baby, to enlighten us and to allow us to see what it means for a person to live a Christian lifestyle. And I love to take things then that he wrote that some of us, it makes us uncomfortable, it distresses us, because you're like, how can the same person who wrote these empowering, empowering and uplifting things say this? You're just like, I, I, perhaps you want to choke Paul from the grave. But what we have to do then as followers of Jesus is to determine what this does to us today what it means, and how we approach it. And that's why I wanted to open up to Acts chapter 16. We've been studying the book of Acts for months right now. If we recall, it all started just weeks after Jesus was, was killed. He was resurrected and ascended. And Jesus said to his followers, this is all on you now. Good luck. And the church was started. And for the previous weeks and months, we've been studying what, it's, what, what it looks like for the young church to rise up and to take the word of God and to spread it across the entire globe. And we arrive in Acts chapter 16 with Paul, who wrote the preceding things. Paul, with a bunch of traveling companions, including Silas, end up in the city of Philippi. And I show the map here, just not fully gratuitously, but for us to also see this location of Philippi, which was in Macedonia, considered part of Greece. You can see the back end of the boot of Italy to the left. And this was the location in Acts chapter 16 where Paul and his companions found themselves. This is a Bible map, 
And the reason there's all these little dots right here is that this is where the early church sprouted up in these towns. It was very strategic too because it was always in a place where trade would happen through, where people would be coming and going, where ideas could spread. And Philippi was one such place because it was a port city. So as a result of being in that location, not just would sailors and goods come through there, but ideas could spread throughout the kingdom. And Paul and his companions do what they always do in the book of Acts, and I hope you're seeing this. They show up and they look for the synagogue. Why did they look for the synagogue, the place where the Jews worship? Because Jesus as the Jewish Messiah was the fulfillment of Judaism. And as a result of that, Paul and his companions were always looking for that. But here in Acts chapter 16, we see that they're looking and they can't quite find the synagogue. There is no Google Maps. They are searching and they end up by the river and they see upon the scene a bunch of women gathered there. And Paul and his companions, they go up to them and they start talking. Now, for you and I, that means absolutely nothing, but this is very cultural, and I think Luke includes it for this express purpose. Because as a Jew, you would not approach women in public in a, in a setting like this because within Judaism at that time, it was very separate between men and what women were to do and how they would intermingle. In fact, when they sat in the synagogues and is custom in some more orthodox synagogues now, the men and the women were sat on opposite sides of the auditorium. And yet for some reason, the same guy who wrote those previous verses took it upon himself to go down to the river into this group of women and then to introduce himself and start talking about Jesus. We're introduced to a woman named Lydia. And Lydia, a few things about her that we understand in the text. The first thing that we know is that she dealt in purple cloth. It's very interesting because we don't think about this today because maybe some of us love our more flamboyant colors, but coloring, the dye process, was something that was very expensive, especially in the first century. Purple, as a color, was one of the most expensive colors you can find because the, the best way to be able to develop a purple dye was to collect sea snails and to smash them up in a liquid that you could then dip clothing into. So the location of Philippi right across the sea, it made sense that Lydia had a business where she could do this type of thing. But there's a few things about the purple. Number one, purple in the ancient world is always associated with royalty, with wealth and opulence. And the idea that Lydia was a dealer in purple cloth meant that she was running the business, right? She, you know, this is not a business, it's a, she's not a businessman, it was a businessman, a woman, this is the best I can do. But she also is very affluent, and we're going to see this later to the point that they end up using her house as a meeting space. So what we are supposed to see here is that Lydia was very wealthy. The second thing it says is that she was a worshiper of God, and that seems commonplace, and you're like, okay, that might be, you know, just something that's nice for Luke to note, but actually what Luke is trying to do to the Jewish readers is read between the lines. He doesn't say she's Jewish, she's a worshiper of God, which implies that she's actually Gentile. So when Paul is looking for the synagogue but finds these women to talk to, they were pagan Gentile women who maybe had an interest in spirituality but did not know the story of Jesus, and that's what Lydia is introduced to when Paul tells the story. And then finally, and I know this is maybe obvious, but she is a woman. 
the name Lydia implies that she was a woman. In the ancient world, there were no men named Lydia, so this lacks any confusion. The reason that the text notes that, and I pull this out, is because of a scene that we see right now, right? We see the scene where Lydia was introduced to Jesus by Paul, and not only that, Paul's like, hey, you've got a big house, let's Let's just go there. And the implication, the reason that Luke is likely telling this story is because it lets us know that in the city of Philippi, where did the church meet? We've talked about this previously. The church would meet in houses. Whose house did they likely meet in? In the house of Lydia. So the introduction of this story is probably like, hey, the church in Philippi is probably known as the one that meets at Lydia's house. So they go back to the meandering, Right? They've made the connection with Lydia. Now they're still looking for the synagogue. They're walking through the streets. And then there is this woman who starts to pursue them. And we read through the text that the woman was actually demon-possessed. In the original Greek, it was like she was serpent-possessed. So this is like, you know, trying to make the connection that not only did she have something wrong with her, but this was actually Satan telling her to say stuff. And actually, because of this demon within there, the men in the city of Philippi, some of them started to use this woman as like a prophecy machine. So they're like, hey, you want to know your future? We've got the lady that can tell you. So they used her demon in order to gain money so that she would tell the future. But what's interesting is that Paul and Silas's companions don't go up to the woman, but she starts stalking them. And as they're walking, she's like, these Men are going to tell you the truth about Jesus. Get ready. And apparently this happened day after day. These men are going to tell you about Jesus. These men are going to tell you about Jesus. I love the biblical text here where Paul is annoyed, right? So I will pause for some of that you are annoyed by the previous verses that Paul wrote. Understand that Paul too got annoyed. Annoyance is a biblical concept. It's natural. Paul gets annoyed. What does he say? He's just like, look, demon, be gone. Get out. And whoosh. Or I don't know what the sound effect accompanying demon depossession is. I don't know if it's, ah, you know, or a, I don't understand how it happened, but the demon is gone, and the woman is healed, and she can return to life of normalcy, which is a victory for her, but not a victory if you're making money off of her. And those are the men that get irate. And those are the men that seek justice for their financial loss. And they say, not that, hey, they, they, they took the demon from our lady. They were like, and they didn't even say, these two guys are bad for business. What they say is, is that Christianity is a construct against Roman culture and these men are evil. And everybody's like, that sounds like a good argument. And then we end this story with Paul and Silas being beaten by the way, we even skipped. They get beaten again, but they end up in chains in prison. Yes, this is the groundhog day of the book of Acts because repeatedly Paul ends up in prison. I've read through the book of Acts numerous times. I have never looked at these texts actually existing together. And this is something we have to look at when we look at the word of God is quite often when something is there, it's there to illustrate something to us. Sometimes we see the obvious lesson, but I think often we miss the underlying lesson. And in light of this conversation, I believe that it's apt for us to be able to look then and to pan out and say, in the first century, in the first church, 
what role did women play in the church? And that's why I want to look at this Acts chapter 16, because I believe in the story of Lydia and in the story of the slave woman who was demon-possessed, we get a pretty clear picture of what the ancient world looked like. Because the first thing I would say is, how did the church treat women? That is a key question, especially if you are a woman, because you're curious of this, because it's tied into who you are as a person, and you want to make sure that if you are devoting your life to something, that it seems to be equitable to you, and I would encourage you that as we read not just this text, but other texts throughout the New Testament, that women were treated as equal, that there's no separation. And again, I, I, I beg especially for my ladies, for some grace here, because you're like, why can't we change the question around? It's like, how did they, well, how were men? Well, they were equal. I'm not trying to, to say that one predates the other one, but just because of the history of tradition, it's important for us to understand is that females in the church, as part of the broader kingdom of God, were given more equity by the church in the first century than was practiced elsewhere. You know one of the reasons why I can assert that? Because look at the story of the slave girl. How did broader culture treat women in the first century? And there's a reality, is that they were treated as lesser. And that is a piece of truth that most of us do not want to grapple with. But if you were female and lived in the first century in the Roman Empire, as much as you could be a Lydia making money at the end of the day, you were likely subservient to a patriarchal system, to some ability of a man to interject and to take that all away. And that's illustrated within the story of the slave girl, is that a woman in that place could be used as not a human being, but just as property as somebody that was lesser and equal. And I will tell you that throughout the New Testament, that is a message that repeats itself, the idea that the kingdom of God is not just for a select few to prosper, but is for all the people of God to witness and encounter the grace that he has offered that is a beautiful picture of equity across the board. That should be encouraging. But today, we tend to be discouraged because of what has happened since then. And as I think of Paul and Silas in prison because of what they do, I would offer similarly that in this area, the church has become self-shackled. What we have done is allowed ourselves to be enchained and put under an umbrella of prison that is self-imposed because we have not well grappled with the story at hand. I will tell you that the thing that has become for me a point of personal spiritual sadness for the church of Jesus Christ is that we have taken 50% of the population of church and have inverted exactly what happened in Acts chapter 16. Why is it that today a woman in our culture, and get me, I'm not saying that if you're a lady, it's like, hey, you've already arrived, you should enjoy this position. I understand that it's still a work in, pro in progress. But today, opportunities for my wife, for my daughter, for you, are exponentially more than they were even 25 years ago. Something to be celebrated, and yet, predominantly in the church, it can be a place where the fulfillment of that vision for women can be limited. That pains me. And I will tell you is that often that pains me because of my participation in a system that persists that. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Yes, I read this already. I'm reading it once more for emphasis, just so that we can feel uncomfortable a little longer. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. I know what you're doing right now. You've had two glances at this text, and you're trying to think of, no, no, no. You see, Paul said the word I in there. That's a personal pronoun, so that's got to be an opinion, and then I'm just going to write that off, right? And you're trying to wordsmith, and you're like, well, maybe he's actually talking about, you know, a good Jewish family, or maybe he's doing this. And I'm going to tell you guys, you can bind books online that are going to take these exact texts and you're, they're going to examine them, and they're going to pull out the original Greek language, and then they're going to cross-reference the Hebrew, and maybe even the Aramaic of the Old Testament to look at this. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to see two different results on either side. So before you try to bask in your own theological brilliance, because I know it emanates from me, recognize that it ain't easy. Because you've got to grapple with Acts 16, and you have to grapple with this. Okay? And actually, one of the hardest things for many of us is that we bear upon ourselves the religious baggage of the generation that went before us. I had the chance to study under some brilliant teachers, and I will tell you, it's, it, it, the majority of them were men, not because they were brilliant, but because women generally in theological studies in the early part of my career were not even allowed to speak on such subjects. But one of my, um, what I want to say, a, a person who has probably taught me a lot about theology talks about this topic and takes aside, actually in the last couple weeks, he actually wrote this, that God's word does not allow a woman to teach Bible doctrine to Christian men. Women can preach to other women or even preach to non-Christian men for evangelistic purposes. The general principle behind it all is male headship. Now, this is the pivotal point in the conversation. Because maybe as you're grappling with this, some of you are just ready to open up your sarcastic vein and to go full mockumentary on this type of stuff, right? Because you're like, what an old crotchety man. And you don't know if he's old or crotchety. You may be correct in your assumptions. But it's the idea that we look at this and what we want to do is vilify this. What we want to do is look at what Paul wrote and ignore it conveniently. But I will tell you is that neither one of those responses are well. Because can I tell you something that we have to grapple with? Is that the guy who wrote the text that influenced that, I'm going to be in heaven with him. And the guy who actually said that, I'm going to be in heaven with him. But in Dylan's exuberance, because you can tell that Dylan is feeling the tension right now, he's like, we need to move on from this because I've laid this in. You just were like, come on. Because here's the issue is that the issue with this is more predominantly is that what else the scripture says about the involvement of women in the kingdom of God and the church. We talk about Miriam, who was a prophetess, the sister of Moses. God used her to say prophetic things, which would be uttering the word of God, and it was not just for evangelistic purposes to women only. We understand Deborah from Judges chapter 4 and 5. Deborah was called by God to lead the nation of Israel in a time when there was a leadership vacuum. And in fact, she gave a man the opportunity to lead. And he's like, I'm good. 
So she took it anyways because the opportunity presented itself. We do know that Jesus, as much as you're like, well, he was a carpenter. He stopped his carpentry work at 30. And I don't know if you know about that. In the ancient world, it's not like they had massive bank accounts. So it's not like Jesus took his debit card to the PNC and was like, I can withdraw shekels from this thing. He needed money upon which to subsist. And you know who were the predominant funders of that were women at that time. We understand that on the day of Pentecost, here at the beginning of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came into that place that filled the earliest leaders, we know that there were women involved in that. Here later in the book of Acts, in chapter 21, we'll read about Philip's four daughters who actually prophesied for the Lord. And then in Romans 16, to absolutely blow your mind, the inclusion of Phoebe, Priscilla, Junia, who for years, there was a textual variant where Junia became Junius because they're like, well, it can't be a woman, right? So I kid you not that at some point they were a, were a translation decision made to, in, to, uh, to impact the idea. And as much as I have read people who are like, well, even though it says she was an apostle, she obviously wasn't an apostle, but you know, she, she must have had something. Friends, at the end of the day, what this does, it takes what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, and it throws us into a quandary. I hope you're feeling that now because it's what I feel every day of my life. Because it opens up a broader issue. So you think the issue is about women. It's not even really about women. It's about how you and I and we as a church engage with the word of God. And that's what we really need to examine before we see this. Can I give you my view of it? This is my oversimplified view. That there's a polarity of existence. There's a conservative view of it, and there's a liberal. Yes, the liberal view, I say, is that there's no laws with white claw. Some of you live by this adage. That's time for another sermon, because you all need some help. Or there's the other end of it, to which Susan is now imparted as part of her mantra of life, is that you don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. I would say that this is the way that you and I prefer to live our lives. What we want are axioms and adages which makes our life simple. Right, uh, it's um, oh, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky. They call it heuristics. What it is is it is programming your mind in a simple worldview, so that when a situation arises, your brain doesn't have to think. And if you want to go from an evolutionary standpoint, when you don't think, you burn less calories, and that's a survival instinct, right? So what we want to do is live polar lives, find a place where we can nestle in. And it'd be interesting, I would love to do this, but I'm not going to do this. But I want you to internally think, is that which side of the spectrum do you want to? And by the way, lose your political baggage, you South Carolina primary people, who, you know, I'm not talking about Trump or Bernie on these extremes. I'm talking about the way that you view life. But what, what way do you prefer to live? In a conservative where, no, I want all rule, structure, you tell me exactly what I can do and I want to live in there. Or are you, you know, me and my white claw, right? Like I am willing just to live free as a feather floating in the breeze with no rules because that's how I like it. I think we have this tendency and proclivities. But here's the thing as we look at the scriptures, because this is important is that what we tend to do here then is we limit the ability for God to speak in our lives in many ways. So I know people who are like, you know what, I love Jesus, but this whole Bible thing, I read 1 Corinthians 11, 14, 1 Timothy 2, I can't buy any of that. You know what, I think it's just this nice little existence. I'm just going to live here where it's just like, you know, God exists, but he's cool with everybody. It's nice. We're just all doing our own thing over here. 
The danger in that perspective is that you really then cannot say anything definitive about God, right? And at this point, yeah, anybody can do anything and be content with this because in this point, God is nebulous, right? You're like, hey, we don't know anything about God. I would tell you that that extremist position is not a good place to take. On the other end of the spectrum, I think there are the legalists among us who want to know exactly what God is doing. For some of us, we find comfort within that. But in that paradigm, we believe that we know everything about God. So again, this is really part, not, it wasn't inherent within it, but it's become part of my tribe because when theological liberalism became a thing, we came all the way to the side because it's like, no, we know exactly what God is thinking at every moment of every day. And when he says this, he says this. But what that does, however, is even though it brings us into this place of certainty, we still have to ignore the other things that are said. Are you tracking with me? That's why I love to bring up about Miriam, about Deborah, about Phoebe, about Junia. Why do I like to bring this up? Because it throws us into a thought quandary. You know where I'm landing. Some of you have been with me for a long time. This is why I try to advocate the space between the tension. You know what sucks about it, though? It is horrible to live here. Because, to be honest... If you're not on a, on a pole when you live in the middle, you're getting beat up by both sides of it, right? Here in the city, generally, most people of faith live more progressively liberal, and even the people who are Christians want to criticize you for taking definitive stands on the Word of God. Among my tribe, our tribe, the, where the church came from, which tends to be more conservative, <laughs> they end up wanting to say, no, you are uh, apostates. I, it's hilarious is that this past week, which have somebody texted me and they said, hey man, uh, you know they printed two pages about you in the conservative Christian magazine uh, of our things. It was the one that criticized you too, Susan. So this is my second go around. This is the second time I got criticized. And I'm like, oh man, what did I do now? And then I looked about it. And it was funny. It was the most innocuous thing I've maybe said in the last two years. And yet this person wrote two pages about me. I was like, my kid loves me and has never written two pages about me, about anything. But this person was like, this is how wrong Steve is because this is exactly what's happening. And friends, this is the thing, is that it would be easy then. You're like, I just need to exude, you know, just exclude the negativity from my life. I'll just turn them all off. That's not the solution. You're going to have to burn some more calories, y'all. You're going to have to live in the tension. You know what that means? It's not always going to be comfortable. Can I tell you something, though? I believe that's where Jesus calls us to live because it's challenging, because it's difficult. Now, I want to bring this in because I've said some things that maybe you're just like, I don't even know what I think about anything anymore. Let me try to help you process this. I think this is the first thing you need to understand about this church, about the way your leaders see this church, and what we are asking you in journey to walk with us. And I think the number one thing is that we submit to the word of God. So we are not extremists to say that, hey, there's no way we can know everything about anything about God. No, we are going to say the word tells us about God, about his importance to your life, about the gospel of Jesus. God has not left us alone through his spirit, through his word. We live in submission to the word of God. Are you getting that? So even when somebody stands up here, whether a female or a male, as they speak authoritatively, the thing about the leaders of this church 
and it's been the, this maybe has been the greatest pleasure of my life, is to live in a community of people who, who respect and cherish and embrace God's word. That's what this place is. Two follows with some admission. Here's the tough part, though, is that there are times when the word of God does not offer absolute clarity. And you might not like to hear about that, but that is not the purpose of the word of God. I know some people want to say, no, the Bible has all the answers in whatever book of the Bible, but it is not all there. There are gaps within our belief system that the word of God says. There are things that are happening today, and we'll have them for the next few decades, that there is not a direct commandment in the Bible. There is no mention of the internet in the Bible, nor of iPhones, nor of Teslas. There are many gaps within what the scriptures say. So when you're just like, is it ethical to own a Tesla? You can't look to Hezekiah chapter 15 and find the conclusion. So there's not full clarity. So what we have to do is discern the meaning. What is the Lord calling us to do in this spectrum when there's not clarity? And I'm going to offer you in this issue about women leadership, I hope I've explained this, explained this well, but I at least have thrown some chaos into your paradigm to say that the scripture is not exactly clear here. Yes, Paul writes some things, but friends, even in 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you want to really just, just be like, what, what, what? Like Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2 after talking about women should keep quiet, which he doesn't say that. It's like, can you sing? Can you read the word? I saw you women passing out communion today. We're voting on that next month, right? Like, what is, the, what is the line that exists here? It's a little chaotic. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul also says, hey, don't worry, worry. Women will be saved through giving birth, so you'll be fine. I'm like, you'll be saved through giving birth? Like, some of you are just like, if I don't have a child then, is my salvation at risk? You know, I'm trying to get Kaylin. It's like, come on, you got to have a baby real quick. Got to get you saved. And you might be like, uh -huh, Steve's a jerk. I'm just telling you, as we look at the text, and if you're trying to read that through the same, for some reason, a lot of the scholars who encourage this idea, this is what God says, women should shut, they don't really want to deal with that aspect of the verse. Friends, 1 Timothy chapter 2 blows my mind. I've studied it for years. There's many ways I don't even have an idea of what it says. I need to pause, because you all are staring at me, but are you at least tracking with me here? It's not easy. It's not easy. I've studied this stuff going on 30 years now. And there are places where the mystery of God still smacks me in the face with a sledgehammer. So that's why number three is that what our leadership is going to do is try to navigate the gap between what is clear and what is not. And we are going to try to help you and guide and live here. And you're like, well, who made you the purveyors of that? Well, that's why we're reading the book of Acts. And what happens is, and in the New Testament is that Jesus, his authority, we're going to talk about this in a second, but it said, hey, you human beings do the best you can. Now, James 3.1 comes to play. I didn't even include this on the screen because this is what keeps me up at night. James 3.1 says, hey, if you want to be a leader, just make sure you understand you're taking salvation of a bunch of people in your hands. So if something goes wrong, it's on you. So as I stand up here, I don't stand up here just being a cocky flippant. I realize that if I am involved in leading people of Jesus astray as a shepherd, then I'm going to get to heaven. It's not going to be, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's going to be like, hey, Steve, let me show you to like the flattening machine, right? Like it's, it's going to be the judgment of the Lord God on me. That's tough. But that's why we deal with it 
Certainly. Can I, can I give you the phrase that helps to make this work, or the, the text that makes this work out? Is that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 16, he is telling his apostles, you're going to start the church. What's that church going to look like? And what is your responsibility of being either, you know, uh, uh, don't drink or chew, or no laws, white claws? Where are you going to land in this? This is what Jesus says. On this rock, and by the way, we, maybe you know the story, because he's talking to Peter right here, good old Petra, good old rock, but he's also at Caesarea Philippi, which was a literal rock that was a worship center on top of a pagan worship place. So there are people sacrificing animals, doing other unmentionable things to animals right underneath the disciples. And Jesus is like, hey, right here in pagan capital city, that's where I'm building my church. In the most challenging place, we're going to put a church. Gates of hell, I'm not going to overcome it. My church will last. We're here 2,000 years later. I'm going to say that that prophetic word continues to see completion. But this is what he tells the church. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed. Friends, this helps the gap. When there are places where clarity doesn't exist, Jesus says, hey, you're the church. I trust you guys. Do your best. So if you need to permit things, permit things. If you need to loose things, loose things. Figure that out. So again, come back to Dylan, pull back the living intention slide because I think this is important for us to see. So then as we in a church are trying to figure this out, when there are places that lack clarity, you're like, where do we swing? Are we a church that's conservative? Are we a church that's liberal? No, we're trying to live in this tension and be awkward. Can I tell you something that's fun about the leadership of this church is that we have a lot of awkward. And we have these conversations. But you know what I love about that too? There's nobody that God has called to be in a leadership position in this church who I'm like, I wish they were dead. In fact, it's the opposite. I am privileged to walk among the women and men who are trying to live in this tension. It's tough, but we do it. And it's binding and loosing. So God says, do your best. And that's what we're doing. We're doing our best. I forgot where I was, Dylan, because, you know, I'm, I'm way off notes, but just give me the slide that where I was at. This is how we respond, and I think this is the important thing. The mission of the church, of Echo Church, of the Church Universal, of every church in this area, the mission of the church is the most critical task that humans have ever been entrusted with by the Lord God. What we do is important, not just for you. Praise Jesus as you're coming along in your faith. But you know this, there are other people who need to be released to live in relationship with God a dramatic way. And we have been entrusted with that, and that's, that, is, that is important. I'm not saying that you need to quit your job and become ministers. It's not like, no, being employed by the church is not the most important thing. It's what we do together. And I've been able to see over the years in your lives how you live that out. The love that you showed to the loveless. The way that you use your financial resources to do things that are beyond you. Friends, what we do together is critically important. The mission is important, but the church must use all means possible to see the mission to completion. All means possible. I know what you're thinking, and you're like, well, then there's a list of people we need to kill, and that will help us to reach this goal. No, because the scriptures does, tells us do not kill people so don't give me this whole thing. We have to do whatever possible. Not whatever is possible, but within God's provision, we need to do what's possible to accomplish the mission. But at the same time then, we will not let a person's leadership capacity, and obviously you can see what I did with my thing. 
be defined because of gender, to be limited or elevated, right? So if you are a man, it's not like, well, you know, you're a, you're a subpar leader, but you're a man, so you get up, you know, and like you rise. It's the same thing. It's like, well, you know, you're a woman here. Well, we want to be able to highlight women. No, but, you know, we're just going to push that up, even though if you're horrible as a leader. No, we're not looking at gender as somebody's complement towards that, but we're not going to let it limit. So then the view of what we need to view as leadership in the church is how we will judge the leaders. We will do it by their posture, right? Not their posture and how straight they stand, but the way that they approach this. That's why I want to read what Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, because I think it's a very important verse that gets overlooked. Paul writes, what makes you different than anyone else? Paul's talking to the leadership at the church of Corinth, who later he'll tell, keep the women quiet. Okay? But what Paul is telling these leaders is like, what makes you different? What do you have that you didn't receive? Like, did, did you create your brilliance? Oh, no, that was God. But that's okay. If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? You know, it's the metaphor I keep, I've been, it's my metaphor of the month that I keep throwing to Kelly and she's not impressed. But I say it's when you were born on third base and thought you hit a triple. Do you understand that? Like, some people are born with all the privilege and opportunities in the world that they did nothing to do. They're born on third base, and they're like, look what I did. I don't want to work with that type of leadership anyways, whether they are female or male. We're all insignificant. However, God bestows us with opportunities to be better. That's why it's this posture. It's a posture between entitlement and humility. And as I read the New Testament, much more than gender is the conversation of how the leaders of the church present themselves. No one ought be entitled. We received everything from God. We ought to live in humility. First Peter chapter 5, which the irony is not lost to me. If you write that down and go leader, you'll be like, wait a second. Paul is saying this to the young men in the church. Get that. But it's not like that part in the Bible. It's only for males between the 18 and 30 demographic. This is something that God, the Spirit, is saying to us. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. All right, have I blown this up well? Have I made this? Look at that. There's no slides left. You know why, Dylan? Because I don't know where I'm going right now. And actually, I don't know where I'm going right now purposefully because I've been knowing that I was going to speak on this for two months because this came to a head when you all accepted the appointment of my wife to the position of lead minister of this church. And I know that I have good friends who view things differently in this way. And actually, you'll see this. It's one of the reasons that I respect my wife because I view that she lives a life of humility, not entitlement. It's because this is something that I have seen God pull her into and her be able to raise the skill set that he has to this calling in a way that has just made me excited. And yet at the same time, she knows if I put this on social media that she is going to hit a barrage of people throwing 1 Timothy 2 at her. So you know what part of the sadness is? We've kind of chosen familiarly to live this under the radar. So it's not that I'm embarrassed about it, but she's embarrassed on it. What we, we really are into this is this idea. Do you want to come up real quick? Do you need to add to this? 
you come up here real quick. Let's see, it's not planned. It's not planned. I'm going to give you the chance, you're the lead minister, you get to say the last word. Okay, so you come up on stage. But chosen not to say it just because it's like, oh, we're embarrassed by it. And actually it's no, is that we have come into the council of God with leaders and come in and just saying, you know what, we understand the tension here, but we're going to live in it. But what our goal and appearance has been is to not force that upon other people. Because these are people that we love who believe that they are listening to the word of God and I believe are honestly trying to deal with it. They're not our enemies. I preached early in my ministry career a whole sermon on why men should be leaders and not women. That was 1996. And uh, it was a well-crafted sermon. And now like 20-year-old Steve in the time machine is just like I've got to kill 44-year-old Steve because of his apostate ways. But I think more so what life has taught me is that when it comes to the issue of the church is I have to live in leadership humility. And that's one of the things is that, you know, I'm her biggest fan, but at the same time, I see this as an opportunity for the church in general to see what happens when Kendra with Kelly, along with people who are not female in this church, step up to lead. And that is the thing that I want us to come into account is that God needs us to lead regardless of who we are but that leadership has to be born in humility. So I'm proud of you. I'm thankful for you. And I'm proud of this journey we're on. And again, I didn't write any of this out. So this will be the last thing. She's going to pray, which is good. Um, but, and let's stand again, because that's why I wanted us to stand and give this posture. This is not done in arrogance. This is us standing under the authority of God, just trying to say we are doing our best. But there's one thing I want to add to this. There is no way in Hades. How far did I go? What, what time is it right now? Yeah, I went long. I appreciate your patience. But this is the thing. This isn't the last words, right? Maybe there's a place where you're living in tension that you want to have this conversation. And just let us know. We want to have this conversation and continue this conversation, not to prove who's right, but just to be able to allow us to come into place where we acknowledge the word of God, but we live in the tension today. So if this has bothered you on either side of this, do me a favor, reach out to Kelly, reach out to me. We'll figure out what we need to do as a church, but we are going to throw every resource possible to accomplishing the call that God has put on this church. God, we just thank you for the reminder that we are all equally humbled at your feet. I thank you for giving us your spirit equally here and for guiding us to serve you in different ways. And I've never followed so desperately and so humbly to realize that it's you working. It's not us. And I have reminders of that every day, and I pray that we all do, that we would realize you are moving and it's we get to be a part of it. So God, there's people beyond these doors who feel a calling toward you, who, who sense something about you and they're not sure what. Help us to see our mission out there, be welcoming in here, and to just live out the skills and abilities you've given each of us to show your love every day. We bring these 
ourselves before you together. Amen.